Nick Vens here. This week's guest on the Chattering Hour delivered a chilling performance in what is possibly the best Christmas horror movie ever made, the 1974 cult classic Black Christmas. Lynn Griffin has had an almost 50-year career covering stage, screen, and TV. Up next on the Chattering Hour, Canadian actress Lynn Griffin. And we're back with Lynn Griffin, who played Claire Harrison in the 1974 horror classic Black Christmas. After that, she went on to appear in another cult horror film, Curtains, the Stephen King TV series Storm of the Century, and comedies like Strange Brew. Lynn, thank you so much for joining me this today and giving well, up Sunday. Yes, well, Sunday's a good day to do something relaxing, like yeah. talking about yourself incessantly. <laughs> yeah, that seems <laughs> really cool to me. So I wanted to start by... Do you come from an acting family? Uh, well, yeah, yes, in a way. Right. Um, a, a definitely a, a theatrical of sorts. Uh, my father, um, James Joseph Griffin, was um, a high fashion photographer uh, right. and did a lot of advertising work. Um, and he used me as a baby model, like right from the get-go. I mean, uh, my... A picture that he took of me was on my grade four speller, which caused uh, much uproar. And, you know, I had horns drawn on and mustaches drawn on and all that. So he used me very much in a lot of his print ads. And my mother was an actress. And my father passed away. Well, he became Canadian Photographer of the Year in 1966. Wow. He then passed away in 1967. Oh gosh! At which point my mother had been doing a lot of really at that point, well, not all amateur theatricals because she had done, oh, uh, she'd done a television movie with Cyril Cusack. Anyway, right. so she was an actress. But when my father passed away, we sort of had to have a, she felt she had to have a real job. So she became an agent uh -huh. and she opened her own agency, which still exists to this day. That's called KG Talent, her initials. K. Griffin talent, and it still exists to this day, and it is run by my sister, who kept the name K. G. Talent because her name is Kathy Gate, yeah. and they have been my agents through all of this. So yes, you could say that's um, yeah, yeah, it's somehow not quite born in a trunk, but close to. The, the backstage area somewhere. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And did you train as an actor? Uh, nah, not, not unless you call a school of hard knocks. Right. Uh, because, I, because I started so young, um, you know, I did my first television commercial when I was 10 or 12. Before that, I'd been... A, a catalog model for all the catalogs here and in print work. And I did my first uh, 
television show um, was actually a television series on, in Canada called Drop-In. Is that the first one I did? I think so. Which was like a children's magazine show where you got to act little skits and do interviews rather like this, except in person. And right. it aired on the CBC every day live at 4.30. Um, so from that, I went to uh, several more, mainly television uh, productions and movies and such. And then I did my first play with my mother, which was Boeing Boeing. My mom, Kay, played the maid and I played the French airline hostess at like 15. I had no idea that it was a sex farce. <laughs> <laughs> that seems awfully young to be playing a sex farce. You know, <laughs> hey, I, in high school, I played grandma in uh, The Sandbox by Edward Albee in high school. Oh, wow. So I was ready. Yeah. I was ready. <laughs> so now I'm back playing grandmas. But yeah, it's been a long <laughs> ride. <laughs> so in kind of like 1974, you were part, you know, you were cast the part of Claire Harrison in the horror film Black Christmas, which mm. I have to say, one is often ranked the number one Christmas horror movie. And I've been seeing that on Facebook. All these lists are coming out, and I go, you know, scroll, 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 and I'm going, where's Black Christmas? Where's Black? Oh, it's in the number one spot. It's evidently Quentin Tarantino's favorite Christmas movie, I've been told. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And I have to say, it's one that I found most terrifying. I must have seen it when it came out. Um <laughs> And I just, well, I think either when either saw it in the cinema or, you know, when it first came on TV, I just right. remember that, which I'm going to ask you a little bit more about a little later on the suffocation scene. But before we get to that, how did you land the role in that uh, film? It was just a regular audition with lots of young ingenues. Um, right. I didn't meet Bob Clark at the audition. It was just with the casting director. But I think the reason that I got the role was because I was a very good swimmer. And I told them that I could hold my breath for a long time. Yeah. Right. Yes. And spoiler alert. Yes. Yeah, spoiler for probably, anybody who hasn't seen probably the film. Probably not. Well, not, not unless you've seen the film. You'll go, why did she say that? Well, because she had to swim in the film. <laughs> Black Christmas, of course, no. Um, but, I mean, that is rather interesting because I would like to think it was my terrific uh, ingenue audition that got me the role. But I, I think I kind of clinched the deal with that information. Right. Like, oh, that, well, that's mostly what she's going to have to do. Right, Hold right. Hold your breath, kids. <laughs> so, was that the sort of role you were getting a lot at that time? Was that your... Oh, oh, yes. Now, listen, I have died a lot of ways on film. I, my husband and I laugh. We, we should do the official list of how many ways I've died on film. Um, that was uh, one of the first. Right. Um, 
but I had been playing a lot of victims. I mean, if you see early pictures of me, you'll see what this little, you know, ingenue, Miss Little Perfect thing, virgin looks like. And so I played a lot of victims. I was raped. I was thrown off a building. I was thrown off a horse. I had a gun put to my head as a, uh, in a hostage taking in the movie The Amateur and was shot at point blank range and supposedly died, well, actually did die on the front steps of the consulate in Vienna. So um, I think I've died pretty much every way there is to go, uh, I, but, but fortunately not suicide because I'm a very happy actor. Right. Um, and the interesting thing that I will say about The Amateur was um, I shot that film before there was a hullabaloo about an actor named John Eric Hexham, who actually did had the very same thing happen in a film where they held a gun to his head with a blank. And the blank is usually the guns usually packed with some kind of gunpowder mm -hmm. so that it looks like it explodes. Anyway, the gunpowder loosened the blank and then the blank killed him. Yeah. Yeah. Now, little did I know that <laughs> that when this had happened, I went, oh, I merrily, you know, went ahead and said, yes, although I did have the stuntman and the director hold and fire the gun to their head before I agreed to do it. Right. How, however, uh, back in the day, we did some dangerous things that we didn't realize were going to be so yeah. um Probably now you'd not be allowed near a gun on a set unless it was a, you know, very clearly a fake pistol. Yeah. And to be honest, they put, they'd use CGI or electronic effects to put it in afterwards. Yeah, because it was great because the director was Charles Jarrett. He, the, the stuntman was standing on one side of me and the director on the other was holding my arm. And when they fired, the director did the pull jerk. So that it looked like my head had been, yeah. Snaps. Oh, and wow. then, and then for, I was wrapped for the day, clearly. I, I don't think I was wrapped for the whole film. Maybe I was. But they sent me back to the hotel, which was right around the corner. This was in Vienna. Uh -huh. Actually, Vienna, Austria. Um, and I walked around <laughs> completely covered in blood back into the hotel lobby. I walked up to the front desk and I said, could I book a massage? looking at me like oh i know she's in the film but really they said oh you i mean much easier for you to go back to the hotel and you know have a shower in the hotel and clean up rather there. than clean you up before that yeah 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 mm. had that happened to me before yeah you don't need to shower here nick you just get in the car <laughs> everyone wants to go home yeah yeah i've been in that one before yeah yeah so going back to black christmas um for a moment so um you mentioned bob clark yeah. Uh, what was it like working with him? Oh my God, my uncle Bob. I, I, uh, he was so wonderful it's throughout the whole filming. I mean, he, he, you know, when you're shooting a horror film, and it really is kind of a disturbing subject, but he made it so much fun right from the very beginning, um, because it was a, the Christmas party, so we all kind of got to hang out and it was all really fun at the Christmas party and stuff. And, and even when we got to the phone call, he, I remember him saying to us, okay, well, it's a dirty phone call, but you know, I don't know how old I was, what, 
72. How would I have 20? I went, oh, so he's probably saying, like, I, I'm going to come over and I'm going to rip your clothes off or something. Anyway, needless to say, I didn't know it was as blue as Bob decided to make it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and because he and Nick Man. Cuso did a lot of the of Billy's voice on the phone, um, so I did. I, I you know I had no idea. It was all like all fun and games, right? Until yeah. the plastic bag comes along. Yes, until the speaking of the plastic bag. Now, as I say, this is what I found that incredibly disturbing. To what I remember this so clearly watching this film and just thinking, a how disturbing it is to watch as a film, and then when you see it later on in the attic, but also just as a fellow actor, you think, how on earth did they do that to, what was the trick for the, behind that, apart from just holding your breath? Uh, well, we tried several tricks. And, and I must say, you know, we had kind of a lovely closed setup in, in the real attic in that house, because we shot everything uh, actually in that house, which is still somewhere, you know, down in Rosedale in Toronto with them having erected a fence so that they don't get too many looky-loos. Right. Um, but we were up in that attic, a small crew. It was really um, Bert Dunk, um, who was the cameraman, and Bob and myself, and of course, Claude, the cat. Um, but Bob like, had me in this rocking chair. He was sitting across from me the whole time. He actually had his foot on the rocker so he was the one rocking it back and forth um so we started we put the plastic bag over my head and they went no problem at all we're gonna poke holes in your nose and in your mouth and it'll be sucked in so you'll be able to breathe so we tried that however you could see the plastic moving slightly and also the condensation started to form right so it was like, oh, that's not going to work. Okay. All right. Let's just put the bag over her head. We suck it in your mouth and uh, up your, we'll stick it up your nose a little bit. And we will. We'll just see how long we can do the take with you holding your breath. So there you see um, my special skill came in completely handy. Now, the other thing that I'm pretty happy about when I watch it now is how long I was able to keep my eyes open as well. Like really big open and mouth open. And uh, anyway, I, I have been called upon to do it, you know, in other films now because I was so good at it. <laughs> Very good at playing dead too. <laughs> you know, lying on a slab in a morgue you know, in the drawer that they open and there she is dead. Um, so Bob was absolutely delightful the whole time. He was just talking me through it. He was making jokes. He would say, like, we'd, we'd shoot all morning and he'd say, okay, let's break for lunch. Lynn, can you just stay there? Because we don't want to have to, you know, for continuity, we'll have to keep the bag on the way it is now. And um, Can somebody get her something with a straw? You know, he was really funny. Plus, he was the one who was in control of Claude, the diva cat, because Claude was not uh, a showbiz cat. Claude was chosen for his great beauty. 
So he didn't want to jump up on my lap. He didn't want to do anything. So Bob was hurling him at me from his vantage point on the chair opposite me, hoping that Claude, of course, would come up and, you know, lick my face was the sort of action that we were hoping for. Well, Claude was like, I'm not going to do that. So after many attempts of Bob throwing the cat at me, the cat landing somewhere along my legs and like literally falling down with claws completely out down the front of my legs. We decided that we'd start with Claude on my lap and they sprayed the bag with my face underneath with catnip so that Claude would come up eventually and behave. And I mean, Bob thought this was hilarious. I mean, you know, we have to we have to understand that Bob's other Christmas movie is a Christmas story, which is one of my most delightful Christmas movies of all time. I know people watch Black Christmas every Christmas, but I watch It's a Christmas Story because he has a wonderful sense of humor. Right. And right. and gone tragically far too soon. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um so were you a fan of horror films when you were cast in the role? Uh no, I I was a very serious Miss Thing stage actress. I was working at Stratford Festival you know, doing Coriolanus and, you know, Twelfth Night and uh, The Taming of the Shrew and all these fancy plays with, you know, very, I mean, I was working with, uh, oh God, you know, Kenneth Haig, uh, Ian Richardson, Carol Shelley, Peter Ustinoff, all these like fabulous actors. I was so lucky. Um, so that's what I was doing. I was a serious Shakespearean and classical actress. Um, and I, I, I guess I don't know whether I had just kind of had enough of being stuck in Stratford all for nine months of the summer and doing the same play. So I started auditioning for films. Um, <sighs> now, I didn't really... Uh, I mean, go out specifically searching for horror films, I think, at the time, uh, wherever it was in those early 70s, those were the kind of films that that really um, Toronto or Canada or anyway, we were we were doing extremely well and sort of setting the standard for the genre. Um, So I think those were what were uh, that was what was available to me and so now when I look at it I mean those films that I made I appreciate and I think a lot of people that now because of social media appreciate because they're they're more psychological than blood Mm. and guts and gore the blood and guts and gore I can't deal with I I love love psychological horror like Hitchcock like The thing that frightens me most in film is what you don't see or what you can't see, what you don't know, rather than seeing it all splayed and splatted out in front of you. Right. So those are the kind of horror films I really like. Um, And I do watch them frequently. I mean, I watch any Hitchcock film when it comes on. I'll watch again and again and again. 
but I haven't seen a single saw one, two, three, four, five, six, or however many of them there are. I, I've got a box set downstairs and I keep on meaning to open it up and watch it. Oh, well, um, one day, one yeah. day we'll get together. Going back to Black Christmas, I think the other thing that's extraordinary about Black Christmas is the cast. I mean, you've got John Saxon, Margot Kidder, Olivia Hussey, Keir Delea. What was it like working with that? Kind of up and in the case of the women, particularly, well, even with Kia, just up and coming young actresses. Um, well, I mean, Olivia was extremely established because she had done Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. And yeah. of course, because I was, you know, the serious Shakespearean actress, being able to work with Olivia Hussey for me was like, oh my God, I'm going to pick her brain every minute of the day because it was fascinating to talk to her. Uh, uh, about working with Zeffirelli. Um, and Margot Kidder had had some notoriety before that too. Mm -hmm. uh, and Margot was lovely because Margot was a total method actress. And I think I don't really have to probably go into detail on that when you think of uh, the scene in... <laughs> In the uh, police station and also her description of turtles mating. Um, she, she believed a, a, a little, a little help loosened up the lips and um, made you be able to kind of have a freedom on film, which I just adored. She was, she was lovely. And mm. then there's Andrea Martin. Oh my God. I yes. never got to work with Kier, um, no, you know, because not. he was working around and, you know, being menacing. Um, and I was already dead by then. Um, mm. But yeah, I mean, it was a great group of people. And as I said, Bob made it seem like a party all the time and, right, and right. just kept it very, very light and very uh, fun. And I mean, it was really, truly a Christmas experience. Right. Do you, do you have a, Apart from you know what you've already described, do you have a particular favorite moment from working on the film? Oh, it's not mine, but I have a favorite moment. Okay, what's that? My favorite moment in the film, which always scares the pants off me, is when the police officer calls and says, "You have to get out of the house." He says, and Olivia's on the phone. You have yeah. to. You have to just walk through the front door and leave the house. She's what? What? Of course, right? And she hangs up, and she starts walking back, and then she walks past the stairway, and you see the hand grab her hair and pull it back. That is so scary to me. I mean, it's like, oh my god. Yeah. You know, I think there, there's two films I find really scary: Cape Fear, Prince of Tides. Those films that are about home invasion. That terrifies me. So, yes, yeah, that well, Cape kind, Fear, mm. yeah. I was going to say because, of course, with Cape Fear, is if I'm remembering correctly, is a lot of it is set on a boat, and it's that kind of. No, no, it's in the house. Oh, it's in the house. Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah it's, yes. They're yeah. both home invasion yes. films. Yes, sorry, yeah. Um. So, yeah, that. The, and I and I think it, I don't know whether Black Christmas was original in its, its genre for being, um, you know, the killers in the house, the killers. Yeah. 
um, because a lot of films kind of um, use that then as their basis of, you know, the horror of them, the movie that, you know, the killer is very near or the killer is in the basement or he's breaking in through the upstairs window. Yeah. Uh so uh, uh, yeah, I think home invasion is very scary. So yeah. ha- having Olivia walk past and having the her hair pulled like that to me, I jumped out of my seat when I saw it. Right. You know, it's funny now that when I go to screenings because of you, you know conventions and horror conventions that happen, and they want you to come to like the screenings and such, and so. The, I think one of the last times I went, I saw it on like an IMAX screen. Wow. And because they snuck me in at the last minute, I was sitting in the very front row. And I was I was noticing things that I had never really seen or clocked before. Uh, how many times that cat kind of was sort of in the corner of the scenes initially. And I never really even thought of the cat until we got to the attic. So anyway, um, there's lots of really good surprises. If you ever want to watch black Christmas (laughs) on an IMAX screen. Right, 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 right. And what about the actual, I was thinking, what about the actual filming of black Christmas? You talked about being up in the attic and doing all the, any other particular favorite moment from the actual filming of the, of the film? Well, I, I think, also, because I'm, I was very um, impressed with the use of what was then Steadicam, although it wasn't really what we know now as a Steadicam. It was Burt Dunk sort of strapped into this contraption because he really was. I mean, when you see the the killer climb up the mm. outdoor trellis, that's Burt with this yeah. contraption. When you get into the closet, it was great because, you know, I'm he's it. Bert is in the closet with the camera behind the plastic bags, and it's his hands that come out. I mean, this guy, he was brilliant, and and the fact that they created this so that there was that eerie, almost you know, POV of the killer all the way through and the eye and all that. I thought was really stunning, but the fact that Bert was able to be, I mean, I think Bob would have loved to be the one to strangle me, but it was Bert. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I, I, you know, I just like the the camaraderie of, I I like the fact that it was a Christmas movie. I mean, I guess, and, you know, one of the first real actual feature films that I did, not that any of us knew that it would become, the kind of cult favorite that it became ever. Yeah. No, you have no idea that that's going to happen. No, no, well, no. no. Not and, that, you know, however many years <clears throat> later <laughs> that people would be contacting me and, you know, wanting an autograph and, 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 and that it has such longevity and also, Excuse me, but when we were on set one day, Bob said to me, I, I, I want to show you something because I want your approval. And I said, okay. So he took me into the kitchen or somewhere of the house and he laid out the poster. And he said, we want to use your image as Claire with the plastic bag on your head. 
as the, the, the really the primary image for the film. So it's going to be on all the advertising, all the posters. Is, is that okay? And I said, oh, my God. I mean, you know, the height of flattery. I've been on some other, I think the other poster I was on, too, I was... I was still alive, but I died in that film too. That was the amateur. But the fact that that poster gave me this, um, I don't know, following this, mm -hmm. this sort of, it, my image was connected to the film so entirely. Um, I, I got to show you, this is what I do at Christmas time for fans. Um, I make Black Christmas Christmas ornaments. You can find me on Facebook. I make <laughs> I make black Christmas Christmas ornaments. I I mean, I've made I don't even know this year. I mean, I made twenty five for somebody. I just sent four out to somewhere, you know. So, um, and they're signed. Uh, and Brilliant. I and I sell black Christmas ornaments. <laughs> So that image has, you know, followed me and actually continues to um, be my little money-making cottage industry. Yeah, yeah, and that is such a very useful thing to do, particularly in the you know <laughs> in at these the moment. Days. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Oh, great. Well, that's a wonderful thing to have hanging. Uh, from the sorry for the self-promotion. No, no, don't apologize for that. I'm all for things like that. And I'm, we can put a link. I'm sure we can add a link below so that people will be able to find you and follow you on Facebook uh, and so yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think you mentioned earlier on that you have a tradition of watching A Christmas Story at Christmas. Is that right? Mm, Do you, mm. uh, is that your go-to film, Christmas film? No, well, actually, A Christmas Carol. Alistair Sims. Uh, I mean, I have to watch that every Christmas. And interestingly enough, my husband and I now have a show that we usually tour every second year. Obviously, we're not touring it this year, but it's called A Christmas Carol Comedy, um, which has been written by our friend Katie Lehman for us. And in the show, which I direct, we have an actor who plays Scrooge, and then Sean plays everybody else so a christmas carol is one of those movies we have to keep abreast of we have to keep revisiting because we keep adding like new bits to the play but the play is definitely on you know the along the lines of monty python and you know we, we send it up rather um cheekily that sounds like a huge amount of fun and is one of my favorite stories and yeah, yeah. i think of the of all that my favorite Scrooge is Alistair Sim. Oh, oh, the the morning uh the morning when he wakes up is just I'm I mean, and me as you know, the poor actor with me directing, trying to say, Yeah, but Alistair Sims did <laughs> No, I I really don't do that. And and we have we've had wonderful actors. we've actually because we've done it for so long, we've had I don't know whether we've had four or five different Scrooges along the way. And Sean always reprises his role. I must say he's a very good Mrs. Cratchit. Otherwise I would want that role, but he has to play everything. He's also a very good tiny Tim and Jacob Marley, but yes, he plays 
I think he plays 26 different roles. Wow. Because he plays all the women as well. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That sounds, yeah, but I, Alistair Sim, and I have to yeah. say my, my other favorite Christmas carol is the Muppet Christmas Carol. Oh, oh, of course, of course. Like well, a cane, it's just, yeah, absolutely. Well, you're terrible. obviously from my planet. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, okay, so moving on from Black Christmas, mm. um, there's another film I wanted to talk to you about is Curtains, mm. which for anyone who hasn't seen it, the basic premise is six young actresses are auditioning for a movie in a remote mansion, which obviously I think is a terrifying concept for any actor. <laughs> you know, you get six, you know, the six of you in a mansion, creepy old mansion with a bizarre, very intimidating director. Uh-huh. How did you land that role? Um, that's interesting because I know I was working at Stratford at the time. I probably, it's so funny. I, I probably came in because the, the script interested me, and also because they wanted me to audition for the role of Patty, which I found really odd because she was a stand-up comic, and that was the farthest thing from my repertoire. I had never done anything like that or even remotely tried to be funny. So I think that was the appeal for me. And I I think, I guess, probably the audition, because I didn't think I would get it, I was probably fairly liberated in my, because I know I made up some, you know, very bad jokes. (laughs) I think even the joke might, you know, in and out in in five minutes or whatever it was, too, um, that went into the comedy act that I did in the film was mine. And so I, I guess um, I was just very free in the audition. So luckily for me, I booked the part. And I also, I, I, I was just um, fascinated by Richard Chupka, who was the director, who was such an interesting fellow and, and had such um, ah, this wonderful ideas for the film and the way he was going to film it. And it was sort of, um, European, his his place, his flair and 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 taste of the film, which right, I enjoyed right. very very much. Um, so, um, that was just a lucky shot, I guess, that I got cast. And then you know there were all these chums of mine, as well as you know Linda Thorson, who was wonderful. And I mean, I knew a lot of the other women because we you know as the thing that's funny is that we've been in this business for so long that the same ingenues who were auditioning you know back in those days now we're still the same old group same old 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 ladies now auditioning for the grandma parts and I just walk in and I say come on ladies let's flip a coin like any of us could play this part who's got the largest line of credit to pay off Give them the part. Um, so we've been around a long time. And, you know, you, you stay friends with some people, some people you never see again. And, mm. But the bond that you create while the shooting schedule is happening is huge and yeah. wonderful fun. And, and also because like Brat Christmas, it was all of us kind of stuck in this house again. Right? 
Right. So although we were on a soundstage, but, it, you know, we were the, 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 the group of lovelies that were all together. And, you know, we had to we had to get along in real life, <laughs> even though. But, yes, I love that. Um, what was the tagline? Six actresses up for the same part, but one of them will kill to get it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I can't remember it off the top of my head. But something, something like that. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And did you, you, you mentioned that you kind of, did you script some of your lines as the, as just the, that one? I, I had to come up with my own comedy routine, which we shot live at Yuck Yucks in Toronto, which is famous for, um, oh, yeah. being where Jim Carrey got his start in Toronto. Um, and I was, quite literally terrified. I was up in front of a live audience doing my comedy routine. And one of my jokes was photo mat, which of course nobody would get now. Digital? Ah! Yeah. I, yeah, yeah. What, what, what is photo mat? What the hell is that? This whole idea of going into a shop to get your photocopies. Get your photographs. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. but that, that, that was my one famous joke. Right, right. But you actually, and you had not But I did do a stand-up routine that night in front of a live audience, you know, with the the sweat and the scariness and, you know, the fact that there were cameras rolling, but they weren't really told to laugh or boo or whatever. It was just, let's just wing it and see what happens. Yeah, I think that is possibly the most terrifying thing I think I've ever heard, the idea and, that you as an actor have to stand up. And, and, and ask not, me if I've ever done stand-up since. God, no. have you? <laughs> no. Now, it did release my um, comic gene, though, because then I felt that I actually could be funny. And now all I just want to be funny all the time. <laughs> Right, right. I want to do, you know, I mean, I'm cast mainly because I've got rosy cheeks and look like somebody's grandma or nanny, you know? Right, 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 right. What do you, um, now, what I wanted to ask you is, I know that one of your close friends is Nancy Loomis. <laughs> <laughs> how long have you known Nancy? Um, how old is Win, Win, Winnie? Well, now, um, uh, I would say that's got to be close to 35 years. Maybe. Wow. Um, we met because I was married to uh, a DOP named Stephen Poster at the time. Right. Who was shooting a Tommy Lee Wallace movie called Hanama Bay. Right. Um, and I got hired on as the female stand-in. So I went along for this lovely long trip uh, in Hawaii. And I had a lot of free time. And Nancy came with her little baby, Winnie, at right. the time. And Winnie had to be, I mean, me, I mean, fairly new. No, she might have been one or two. Right. Anyway, right. we became extremely fast friends. Um, I ended up uh, actually taking over uh, Nancy and Tommy's apartment in Los Angeles and lived there for years. I also, funnily enough, had, when I got married the second time, ended up buying uh, John Carpenter and Adrian Barbeau's house in Laurel Canyon. 
Right. So we had this enormous um, connection. Right. But of course, I just watched your interview with Nancy, which was wonderful. I mean, I love Nancy dearly, but she's so smart. And then I got worried and I said, well, I guess I'm going to have to play for laughs because <laughs> Nancy is one of the most esoteric and interesting people and a total inspiration for me. She inspired me as a visual artist once she started getting into her sculpture, which is, I mean, phenomenal if you mm. see it in, yeah. you know, up close and personal. It's incredible, especially her one that I call Serena Williams um, and the tornado. She has one that's called the tornado. But um, she inspired me because we would go for walks together and she would be like her eyes would be on the ground looking at trash and things that had been tossed away and found object yeah. uh, sculpture was what she did, which inspired me to an incredible degree. And I mean, I babysat both Winnie, Winnie and India. I mean, we, if we ever get to go back to California one of our stops along the way is to go, if we can, to Nancy's house in Pasadena. And on New Year's Eve, we'll go out along her street where they park all the Rose Ball floats. So you can see them all up close the night before. Right. Take out your glass of champagne and wander and smell the, smell the roses. Going back again to your career again for a moment, I was just thinking one of the other things you were lucky enough to work on was Storm of the Century, ah. the Stephen King Storm mm. of the Century with, I mean, there's a cast include Confiore, Becky Ann Baker, Tim Daly, Julianne Nicholson, Jeffrey Jumon. What are your memories of working on Storm of the Century? Um, well, we got to shoot in Maine, in Stephen King's you know, stomping grounds. Right. Uh, he never appeared. Um, but I mean, it, it was lovely because we all had to kind of <gasps> start talking in that kind of, <gasps> yeah, yeah, there's a big storm coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, I, you know, I loved that coming up with the dialect. Now, the funny thing is with Colin Fior, Colin Fior and I had worked together many times at Stratford. In fact, there is a recording of The Taming of the Shrew uh, from uh, Stratford, I don't know what year, um, that both Colm and I did together back then. He was sort of a young leading man back then. Um, so it was lovely to kind of reconnect. And, and we've, we've crossed paths on other projects along the way. Um, what I loved about Mrs. Kingsbury is that they had to do an entire mold of not only my face but my body because they didn't want to actually throw me in the snowbank right. so they they made a life-size me i mean i looked again like i do in black christmas you know <laughs> lying in the snowbank but at the end of the filming they said to me you know would you like to have the dummy and i went no. Now imagine what I could have sold that on eBay for, <laughs> silly fool. Um, it's a really weird thing to walk into, though, before you turn the light on as you walk in well, in the and evening go, and suddenly you see it standing in the corner. <laughs> you couldn't live with I, that. <laughs> I mean, I could have. 
put it in the car beside me in L.A. and driven in the carpool lane all the time. And just cl- claimed it was my rather moribund twin. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that was really cool. Anyway, I am totally claustrophobic. So anytime I've had to have the face mask and whatever, uh, when I did the one for Storm of the Century, we did it in this kind of garage. And, you know, they they talk you through it and say, you know, we're going to leave music on and whatever. And they put the straws up your nose and you've got to keep very still because if you move, you know, we're going to have to do it all over again. So anyway, they get me all um, gunked up with the stuff. And then it got very quiet. I mean, there was a little bit of soft music playing. It got very quiet. And all of a sudden there was this bang, 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 bang on the door of the garage. <laughs> Everything Evidently, they hadn't paid or something, or the rental on the garage was due. Where they were anyway. Um. So, <laughs> but my fear of being encased in whatever that paper mache glue and Mr. Glue. Paris, the bandage that they yeah and alginate. Oh God, that must have been horrible. Yeah, and I I did another one where they had to, I mean, it was a TV show, I think, where I had some dreadful parasitic um, infection in my stomach. So they had to do one of my face and also one of my stomach with the, you know, and then you you walk on set and you see your stomach with all the guts splayed out and your face looking completely and utterly dead. Um, It's a bit. But it was good, actually, because I was able to then keep in touch with that special effects guy who made me a lovely um, wound for the top of my head when I did the Beauty Queen of Lenan, where the daughter hits her with an axe in the top of her head to kill her. And then she falls forward and you could see this lovely, bloody, gooey mess that he made for my head. Very good to keep in touch with people you work with on film that have special skills. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You mentioned earlier on that after doing Patty in Curtains, you kind of awakened the comedy gene. I just want to very briefly touch on another of your films called Strange Brew. Oh, yes, of course. (laughs) Here I am with the hosers. Yeah, <laughs> that was, and again, that because I mean, basically, you had Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas directing. co-writing, co-directing, directing. Yeah. yeah, doing everything. So, try and keep a straight face, right? I mean, yeah. that was my biggest job was to try and play the straight man. Um, it, that I mean, obviously, that film changed my life because I ended up marrying the director of photography, moving to Los Angeles, staying there in Los Angeles for 12 years, Um, you know, getting to shoot the underwater sequences in Esther Williams' tank on the MGM lot. I mean, it had so many incredible moments for me. Uh, And literally, like, it's like, which, you know, here's the road, you're going down, and then it goes, oh, go that way? Or does it go that way? Never in my life did I think I would move to L.A. and 
live in LA and, and, you know, do the rounds there and try to, to make it uh, as an actress in LA. I had, I had no uh, aspirations for that, but there I was. And that was all due to strange brew. And again, I think at the time I thought I only got cast because I looked like Dave Thomas's wife, Pam, whose name is really Pam. But funnily enough at the Pensacola convention, we had, a, a very minimal strange brew reunion because it was me, Dave and Angus McInnes. But Dave told a story that initially they had offered the role of Pam to Demi Moore. And that then they had some sort of, in terms of Canadian content and where the money was coming from, that they had to hire a certain amount of Canadian actress. Our actors. So Debbie right. Moore got chucked and I got the part. Well, evidently she's never forgiven him for that. But I was gobsmacked because I didn't even know this story. And he's telling this story at the con. And I'm like, you mean my whole life would have been different because I wouldn't have moved to LA. I wouldn't have married Steve Poster who then eventually when we split up, I wouldn't have met Sean Sullivan who's now been my husband for 30 years and my colleague and cohort. And, you know, I work with him all the time, but my life would have been totally different if Demi Moore had played the role of Pam. Ah, Life is full of these strange twists and turns, isn't it? Wow. Strange brew. Strange brew. And Max von Sydow as well. Oh, Uncle Max. And there again. He sits at lunch and you get to pick his brain talking about what it was like working with Ingmar Bergman. And he's uh, as jolly as anything to say. And there's also another interesting story. Oh, I'm full of them, aren't I? Uh, Dave Thomas said um, when they were writing the film and they wrote, you know, Professor Smith or whatever his character, and they were talking about it in, uh, you know, script meetings. And he said, I want Max von, Max von Sydow to play the part. And they were like, yeah, right. He said, I'm just, I'm just going to, well, hey, what do I got to lose? I'll give him a call. So evidently Dave gets on the phone and lo and behold, he actually gets Max on the other end of the line. And he says, okay, so I've written this film. I want you to be in it. You're going to play this crazy role. And, you know, um, would you be interested? I'll have to get back to you on that. Anyway, he evidently hung up the phone and his kids were there and they said, what was that, dad? And they said, oh, this crazy Canadian has asked me to do uh, Strange Brew. They're these guys that do a thing called the Great White North as Bob and Doug McKenzie. And his kids said, you have to do this movie. They are the funniest duo in comedy right now. And there he was. And so he said, yes. And (laughs) I mean, don't you, isn't this hilarious how life works out? And of course me being, I mean, I was in heaven. He had to carry me in his arms. I was like, this is like kind of a big pinch me moment. Yes, of course. Of course. Now, we're heading towards the close. There are a few more questions I'd like to ask, but one thing okay. I do want to ask, one thing that popped out of me when doing the research is that, and you alluded to this earlier on, I think, you've become a successful visual artist and a very yeah. experienced knitter. 
Yes, you've been working with collage, assemblage, and raw wood. And yes, my producer, Chris Rowe, does know all about your knitting, he says. Here's the latest one. Here's the latest blanket. And here's what I'm talking about. When you ask me who my muse is, it's Uh, Frida Kahlo. So uh, I work with raw wood. As you see, this is the piece of the streetcar that actually wow her, but pierced her which changed her life forever so um and and i've been able to have some uh, well i had a big show 2 years ago and sold a lot of my pieces and i've got another piece in a show at a gallery right now um so yeah i i started this whole new and and again, you know, Nancy was part of that inspiration, but I'd never, I, I, I'd never actually thought of using um, found objects. And I started collect, just like Nancy, going a- around the neighborhood and collecting pieces of wood and old bolts and screws and God knows what bottle caps and and turning them into um, uh, my creative visions. And most of my work, uh, I do like, uh, and I have done a lot of work using the images of Frida Kahlo and George O'Keefe. So. Oh, wow. Wow. And do you have any of this stuff online? Oh yeah. 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 Facebook? I have. Yeah. We can put it on uh, yeah. later, I guess, cause it's a Facebook site that I have right. that shows all my handicrafts. Right. Right. We'll make sure we have a link to all that stuff. So okay. That, uh, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Now, before I let you go, there are just a f- last few questions, which I'm not sure if you're aware that I usually ask. At the- well, you watch Nancy's show. So oh, this- right, right. The luggage right. of the crypt. The, the so- luggage of the crypt. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so what would you take with you? And if I had to get you to narrow it down to a film, what film would you take with you? Hmm. Singing in the rain. Ah. Something happy. Yeah. Something and something that you can watch over and over again. Yeah. I mean, I I'd say Casablanca and Maltese Falcon too, but but if it was just one, I'd like to be able to watch that over and over again. Great choice. I yes, I can completely understand yeah. that choice. What about a book? Oh well. Uh, the Neapolitan novels by Elena Ferrante. I don't know if you know that she started out with a book called My Brilliant Friend. They actually did a series based on it in Italy. So it is uh, available to watch on television. Um, that I think they filmed the first two books at this point. But it's a trilogy of four books uh, that follow the lives of two women in Naples in Italy and the books are enormous the books are you know 400 plus pages each and they are brilliant and the series now is uh, phenomenal um and you can watch the first two episodes or the first two installments of the book I I think are on HBO but um that that those books I devoured so there's four of them right Right. I'd not right. heard of those at all. I've Elena heard of- Ferrante, who, which is a pseudonym, but 
but right. Elena Ferrante, and it's called uh, the Napoleon the the. Neapolitan. Neapolitan novels. Yeah. Neapolitan novels. I shall look mm. those up, and they mm. sound absolutely fascinating. Yeah, yeah, wow. Yeah, what about um, an album? Mm, an album. Mm. Well, um, I got to admit when. My my dear friend, I have a dear friend who every year at Christmas we usually say, as gifts go, I want your favorite book, your favorite music, and your favorite bottle of wine. And the year that she gave me Eva Cassidy changed my life. I don't know if you know Eva Cassidy. Um absolutely glorious voice she's known for a song called fields of gold but her first album her voice and she does uh she ends the album with her own version of somewhere over the rainbow which is glorious glorious um but she died very young because she had a metastatic cancer um which wasn't treated properly anyway um so her work has now sort of posthumously been discovered, and it's really, really gorgeous. She had the voice of an angel. Other than that, I like the McGarrigals. The McGarrigal Hour, the wonderful Canadian Anna and Kate McGarrigal. Right. Um, yeah. It's right. Really good. So I'm a bit of a I'm a bit of a folky. I'm you know a Gordon Lightfoot. I'm Canadian folk music, Joni Mitchell. Oh my God, give me the Blue Album any day. If I had to just take that one alone, I would be okay. Okay, okay, that sounds like great choices. What about a favorite food or beverage? Ah, beverage. A beverage, a drink. Tea. Tea. <laughs> I'm a total anglophile. What right. do you think is in this cup? That's <laughs> a, nice, a nice bit of. Tea. You froze. I don't drink alcohol anymore. So. Right. Nice. And is that, an, is that a Yorkshire tea or an Earl Grey tea or a Lapsang Thai shoot? Typhoo tea. It's Thai only one tea. tea in Typhoo. It's a lovely, really nice, strong British black tea. Portland and Mason's got nothing on Typhoo tea. I think, yeah, there are many people... Yes, I think we've got some Typhoo, actually Typhoo Yorkshire um, downstairs. Yorkshire Gold, I mean, it's got to be strong and it's got to make the hair on your chest stand up. <laughs> <laughs> what about a piece of visual art? You're obviously into visual art. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I love uh, sculpture. Uh, people who blend sort of well sculpture is it not extraordinary that someone can take a block of marble or some clay and create something that is so fine and so detailed so oftentimes really humanistic yes. and i mean i've seen ones with they've had women with They've created lace in sculpture. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and people who use clay, and, and uh, I have a little friend 
um, who does clay sculptures. Uh, he's the son of an actor that I've worked with. Um, and he does these most amazing sort of sculptures of these otherworldly creatures, a little like, you know, Tim Burton, but very much mm. his own work. So, um, yeah, a, a sculpt. Sculpture. A sculpture of some sort. Of, yeah, uh, yeah and pretty much any kind of sculpture right. uh, I right. find extraordinary because it's uh, a, a very unique talent, I think, to yeah. be able to. The 3D One images. thing to throw paint at a canvas. Hey, even I can do that. But <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> I do. No, I do. I, I <laughs> some of those it, things, I, I mean, I when I was at Stratford, they came to me one day. We were in um, a pub. And uh, <laughs> the Haney brothers came in with this board game and said, hey, does anybody want to invest in this board game? And it was like, what is this? And what is this? And they said, it's called Trivial Pursuit. And I went, oh, I hate trivia. I had all this money from working at Stratford. My friend was doing a film about Jackson Pollock, and I gave him the money to make the film about Jackson Pollock. And, you know, then I got to see a lot of Jackson Pollock's paintings. I've seen them up close and personal. Um, I don't know. <laughs> no, I'm not sure about whether I'd put one of them on my wall. <laughs> or maybe I'd make my own. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah. There, there, there is apparently an amazing rhythm within them as they study that they found in nature. and so, uh, Apparently they're at a different level. But anyway. Hey. Uh, or if you've got the time on your hands, you could catch up reading your old TV guides. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Jackson. I, I, I did. Know. I did give lots of money for my friend to make a film about you. But, uh, yeah. But I could have been a millionaire if I'd invested in Trivial Pursuit. I think called Trivial Pursuit. Yeah. Those moments in life. Yes. Mm. <laughs> uh -huh. Okay. We'll end with one luxury. Something to keep you oh. warm. Well, a true luxury would be to have my own theater company, be able to produce all my own work without it breaking our backs. I am getting in my slight segue plug about the Slaughter Brothers Dime Circus, which we've just turned into a radio play because of COVID, which my husband wrote and uh, the original music and the story. But if, if we could have our, my own theater company, that would be luxurious, uh, you know, and it would be in this lovely old building that, you know, there were lots of cats lurking about and, you know, great memories and lots of ghosts there. And we would produce our own work and Good. people would come to see it because they could, because this virus would be over. Yeah. We had a play. We had this play that was about to open and we closed because we were put into lockdown 10 days before we opened. Yeah, 10 days before we opened. It was, I, I, and still now, I mean, you know, we very industriously have turned it into a radio play, but, uh, you know, when it will actually be uh, live again in theater. And we had like brilliant, brilliant cast crew people that had done the most extraordinary visuals for the show. So to turn it into a radio play was <laughs> quite the feat. So anyway, yes. it will launch soon. Yes. Well, 
Good luck with that. Anything Thank else you. that people should keep an eye out for you might have coming through? Uh, well, I mean, you know, there's lots of, uh, I mean, I'm now absolutely fascinated by radio again. Um, so I adapted uh, a short story by Emma Donahoe, who wrote Room, um, from a collection called Astray. It's a story called Man and Boy. And I adapted that as a solo play for my husband, which we have just recorded as well. Um, and I used both Emma's book, Emma's short story, and uh, the autobiography of Matthew Scott, who was the trainer of the greatest elephant in the world called Jumbo. So oh. it is a delightful one-man show. Again, can't be put on stage at the moment, but we've done it as a, a radio play. And now we're kind of looking and going, what a, what's in public domain? That we could do, we're absolutely that we've set up our living room as this little recording studio, and we just want to record like using our voices to the greatest um, depth and expression that we can when we can't be live for people right now. And I've done a lot of uh, like Zoom recordings of people's plays, of their new plays, and I'm finding it a uh, fascinating. Because, you know, when I was younger, radio was quite common. CBC did a lot of radio dramas. But now um, I hope I can interest, like, younger folk in the joys of just listening to an actor speak uh, and bring to life a story with just the, just the voice, just the audio portion of it. Absolutely. Um, and, and we may have to go back to that for a little while now anyway. And so it's been a really great discovery for us. And it's kept us from, you know, literally, you know, being depressed and going slightly bonkers to be yeah. able to actually set up our living room with all the thing and the baffling and the mics and the whatever. And, and we record radio plays now. Well, of course, I mean, these things that can be done as podcasts now, and young people are very much into the idea of listening to dramas yeah. and documentaries and interviews, and that's why we do that the show, both true. as YouTube and podcast, because we know people, some people prefer just to listen to it. And the great um, thing is we want to do a play, but we, uh, I mean, the one that I just did, which is called Pineapple by... Jean Marie Bishop. Anyway, one of the women I think was in Berkeley. I'm here in Toronto. One of them. Anyway, we're from all over the place and we were able to put this play on and make it work somehow. I don't, you know, that we, we find, uh, you know, we're very industrious as actors. You can't keep us in the closet for very long. We'll, no, we'll I find I, a way. I think this is one of my great comforts in life is that throughout all of this is that human ingenuity will find a way. Right. Um, and presented with insurmountable obstacles, they will, we will find a way through this together. This has been extraordinary, Lynn. This is, <laughs> this, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Nick. Thank you. <laughs> That's been my pleasure. And hopefully we'll get to meet in the flesh at some point in the meantime stay safe well yes because um evidently nancy met you at a convention is that correct and of course yeah. hello chris 
Hello, Chris. Uh, my dear Chris Rowe, I hope you're keeping cozy underneath your blanket on these cold winter days. Today is the first day of real a real snowfall in Toronto. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. Warm yeah, winter so blankets. All the best. And um, yes, the world will bring us together, I'm sure. Where are you from, by the way? I'm London. London. Of course you are. Well, you see, my mum was from... My mum was born in, in, well, raised in Liverpool, and my dad was Welsh. Ah, right. There's a good heritage. There's a very good heritage. Well, well, yeah, but my my mum was actually born Scottish, so the Scottish and the Welsh. Even better. I'm married to a Scotsman, (laughs) so I have to, I do say that anyway, but yeah. But yes, I've absolutely been delighted to listen to your dialect for the last hour or so. You You make me feel like I'm back with my old mum. (laughs) and on that note all right take care and i'll speak to you soon take care such a sweet and warm person next week on the chattering hour i'm joined by stephen c miller director of the christmas horror comedy silent night see you then and in the meantime stay safe and well The Chattering Hour, hosted by Nicholas Vince, is produced by Chris Rowe Management and Tea Time Productions. Producer Chris Rowe, with production support from Jared Friedrich and Amanda Rome West. Composer Kevin McLeod, copyright Tea Time Productions. Mm